0: Hey, everyone. I thought I would just read a bunch of listener emails. What do you say? This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am chair of the couple and family therapy program at Antioch University, Seattle, and I'm also a licensed therapist. I thought I would go way back into the archives of emails because I was on the plane at South by, going to South by Southwest and I I maybe mean, talk about South by Southwest. It was amazing. Uh, I went down there to see the old Psychology in Seattle uh, co-host, Lita Katibi-Vallis, if you remember her from the early days of Psychology in Seattle. She lives down there now, and I stayed with her and went to South by Southwest and saw probably 50 to 100 bands, and it was amazing. I am a super mu- music nerd and love to watch live music. And there, it was everywhere. The American apparel had a punk band in the American apparel. There was a hat shop with a bunch of blues and country acts. And you had, you had hip hop and you had heavy metal and you had classic rock and you had country and you had glam rock and you had dance music and you had folk people and horn bands and And I don't know. It was just, it was, it was amazing. So um, I was on the plane and looking for something to do. And I started uh, looking at old emails from listeners and thinking, maybe I should read these because I don't know, just kind of fun (laughs) to read. So for some of you, this might not be a very interesting episode, but I thought it would be worth it. Okay, so Listener Bethany wrote in in 2013, which is three years ago, and I never read this email on the air before, so I thought it was, she says, hey guys, I've been listening to your podcast for a couple months now and loving them. I've recently started an MA in drama therapy and found you through a search of podcasts on that topic and have been hooked ever since. So just chiming in here. Yeah, we did an episode on drama therapy. If, if you want to check that out, check that out. You can also check it out on our uh, Psychology in Seattle website. The, I think we have a, a tab that says videos or something. It's one of the video episodes. And we have a drama therapy program at Antioch University, Seattle. And you can actually be in my program, the Couple and Family Therapy Program, and the drama therapy program. And there are students that do that. And it's, it's a wonderful program. And I recommend it. So uh, Bethany is talking about that. She goes on to say, Kirk, I don't think your last podcast on negative therapeutic reaction was boring at all, as you pondered. I found it really interesting, although admittedly found some of the language difficult to understand. That Klein is a right-head twister, eh? Right-head right head twister, eh? <laughs> right-head right head twister? Eh? Right head twister. Uh, let's see. She's from Bristol, UK. So... uh So uh, right head twister A is must be some kind of UK ism. (laughs) I'm guessing I know what it means. But anyway, Bethany is saying the negative therapeutic reaction episode was not boring. Yeah. I remember doing an episode back then whenever this is three years ago, whenever I did episodes by myself, I was really insecure about it. Since then, uh, a number of listeners have said that they enjoy the episodes I do by myself. So, uh, it's good to hear, and this email is part of that positive feedback. And she also found that the language was difficult to understand. Well, that uh, that bothers me because I'm always trying to make it understandable. It it always bothers me when people talk about psychology in confusing ways and in ways that are almost purposefully difficult to understand. It, it shouldn't be difficult to understand. So. I apologize for that. Uh, so, anyway, just wanted to express my appreciation and let you know that you have a loyal listener from Bristol, UK. And then she says, Loves and Ting, X. X, X, X. Loves and Ting. Loves, loves, N, the letter N, Ting. Is that another UKism? Loves and Ting? Well, uh, loves and Ting right back at you, Bethany. All right, here's another. This is a comment and i'm so i'm I'm going in chronological order to some extent here uh comment to the video negative therapeutic reaction loved this episode, please keep them coming in my work as a therapist. It's easy to get bogged down in paperwork and billable hours. This was a breath a breath of fresh air. Well, you're welcome. Let's talk to another person here talk to uh, again three years ago Aaron listener Aaron. Aaron wrote in. It said, Hey peeps, I loved the latest episode and was rolling over the praying mantis discussion. I do not remember that. Kirk, I enjoyed the practical and professional information you bring to the discussions. I think this is, might be one of the very first emails Aaron ever wrote to us. Um, You're able to render complex psychological phenomena into easily digestible tidbits, which is a great advantage. Da, da, da. Oh, and don't feel bad for promoting your band. You have to get exposure somehow. Well, three years ago, I must have been complaining or worrying about promoting my band. Um, Yeah, I've sort of given up on promoting the band (laughs) because, I don't know, it's uh, back three years ago, I was still probably in the band and was probably still promoting things we have we have three albums on spotify if you want to check that out it's the easiest way to listen to it you can also buy it on itunes bread knife incident is the band and i'm still technically in the band but we're just not currently recording as i've said in other episodes this summer 2016 me and some guys are going to be hitting the streets playing playing on the streets of seattle because I'm tired of all the gear and dealing with the bookers and the blah, blah, blahs. And so we're just going to pick up our guitars and play in a street corner because that's just fun. I don't know about you, but it's just fun to sing and jump around really uh, is cathartic and existentially satisfying. I will say if you're a musician, you understand, but even if I don't know, even non-musicians, if you like to dance if you sing in the car, I bet you you're a car singer or a shower singer or something. Or when no one's around at home, you put on some music and you jump around in your sweats. There is nothing more satisfying than that. Because we're so cooped up in our culture. You know, if if you did that in public, you'd get locked up, right? And uh, we have to always act so professional and we have to we have to be adults, quote unquote, all the time. And so... It's so liberating and so human to scream and yell uh, punk songs or your Beyonce, uh, Sasha Fierce song or whatever. It's uh, very liberating, and so I encourage it all the time. Aaron goes on to say, Umberto, your joie de vivre and extensive resume adds a lovely dose of levity to the program. Your ability to punish Kirk and all the listeners with awful puns, yet be serious when the topic requires, is second to none. You get a gold star sticker in my book. I tell all my friends about the podcast, so look forward to some more subscribers. Keep up the good work. This message was paid for by Pound It Hard Condoms. (laughs) P.S. You have my permission to read this on air if you want. Maybe it'll encourage more people to write in. Yeah, um... Please write in. Also, as listener A. Aaron is demonstrating here, tell your friends about the podcast. Particularly if you're in a graduate training program, or just really anybody, because I think that's the main way podcasts become popular is word of mouth. Because it's like, where do you advertise podcasts exactly? You know how do you how do you get people? How do you get exposure? Um, and, and along those lines, I'd be interested to hear from people how they discovered the podcast. I think people. Uh, will Google things and they'll get one of the YouTube episodes. Um, I don't know. So that was listener Aaron. Here's another listener here. So we're still back in mid 2013. This person says, I've been seeing a psychiatrist, a psychotherapist, Freudian and Rogerian style, who is very competent and capable. I've been seeing this psychiatrist since 2007. I want to be a good therapist. I'm sort of skipping around here. I want to be a good therapist. I started psychology courses recently. I have a very hard time dealing with a breakup. I have a very hard time dealing with a breakup. As universal as the situation is, I feel a big pain. The woman who broke up with me, she pointed to she pointed stuff out to me that I hate within myself. For example, I'm a procrastinator. I still live with my parents. I have difficulties interacting with people. I don't have much of a life. I am pretty rigid in my thinking and I'm arrogant about my intellectual abilities. So these are all things that his, uh, his girlfriend pointed out to him and broke up with him about. She didn't like these things. She saw me as a nice person and interesting and caring, but she couldn't cope with my slow progress She wanted a secure man, an independent man, blah, blah, blah. I don't judge the fact she broke up with me. Her motives seem very relevant to me, and I feel very bad about it. I have feelings for her, and I feel like a loser. I'd love to change my life, and I feel pretty helpless to be seen by her as what I could or want to be. It's very frustrating. I had an exchange with you some time ago you are a, You are a compassionate person, so I trust your witty analysis I'd love to have your opinion and your insight about what i'm living. My guess is is that so end of email. My guess is is that I already responded to him and uh, but I thought I would read it on the air and not identify his name just just so everyone understands whenever you email me and I read your emails on. The podcast I will intuit and err on the side of safety regarding revealing your name, so if you wrote me a very personal email in which you were talking about something along these lines as a unless you tell me otherwise, I'm not gonna identify your name and I'll erase things from the email that would identify you like if you said i'm I live in Oregon or something you know I'll just because it's not relevant to the to the purpose and so in the way that I read this, I took out a bunch of things that would identify the person, including their name. So just know that, because um, sometimes I, I wonder if people avoid emailing in because they're like, "Holy crap, he's gonna—he's just gonna read this on the air, and then I'm gonna be embarrassed." So, um, so just that. And and if ever you want me to not read anything you write, just indicate as such, and I won't do that. Anyway, so this person wrote in, and. They are saying that they're hurt, that they got broken up with. Now, granted, this was three years ago, so I'm guessing uh, things have resolved. But uh, as a way of demonstrating to everyone, uh, the commonalities that I see around breakups is that they are very difficult. And the loss of a breakup can be devastating. When, When people break up with us, it... It can make us feel as though we're not good enough. I mean, talk about a life experience that suggests you're not good enough. I mean, it doesn't get any worse than that. If you get fired from a job, you can say, well, you know, my skills weren't up to par with other people or I didn't really get along with everyone in the office. You know, you can sort of make uh, justifications to salvage your ego. But when you hand over everything you have and all of your love and you reveal your true personality to your, to your romantic partner and over time they grow weary of you and break up with you and they don't want to see you anymore and they fall out of love with you, this is a, a devastating uh, thing to happen to one's ego And it can, and especially if you really loved that person and really wanted to be with that person for the rest of your life, and and respected their opinion, it can be devastating. It can it really rock you to the core, and it's no joke. And there is really no nice thing to say about it, Uh, because you know things like, well don't take it so hard or, or it's not that big of a deal or, you know, relationships end all the time. Like the, this doesn't help people typically because there's just, you know, it's sort of like when your pet dies, your, your dog dies, for instance. Well, there's really no silver lining to that, at least immediately. You don't say to someone, well, you know, you can get another dog or I'm sure he's in doggy heaven or something, you know, like for most people, it's just sad. It's just a sad thing. And so with this person who wrote in three years ago, it's just a sad thing to be broken up with. It hurts. It hurts deeply and it could hurt for the rest of your life. And that that's normal. It's normal to have that hurt. It also looks like this listener is looking at himself and saying, well, I, I do have these qualities that she identified as reasons why she broke up with me. And, and I also, I also don't like these things about myself. and, Yeah. um, You're in therapy and you're working on it and just continue working on that. All of us have flaws. Every one of us has personality flaws. No one uh, is perfect and it's okay. And the important thing is what do you do when you know that and how do you explore to become aware of it? It sounds like you're very aware of of your issues, which is the first step. And then the second step is, is what do you do with it? And how do you account for it? For instance, you say you're arrogant about your intellectual abilities. Well, there's nothing wrong with being smart. There is something about harming other people. You know, arrogance often involves harming other people if you're just in your own mind thinking, hmm, I'm a smart dude and look at me I'm smart, like that's not necessarily harmful. It's probably not healthy because it's, it might lead to harm, but often arrogance means other people are talking and, and you say to them something or you, you imply that the other person doesn't know what they're talking about or doesn't, doesn't have any merit in talking about things. And so that sort of arrogance can harm other people. Now, uh, as I've said in other episodes, there's nothing there's nothing in, uh, to be ashamed of when you make a mistake. It's what you do afterwards. So, if you are arrogant, and you make a mistake, and you realize it. How do you react to that? Maybe the, the next day you shoot an email and you say, "And I, I do this. Uh, I try to do this as much as I can." Uh, you shoot an email, or you call them up and you say, "I uh, the other day made a mistake. I was arrogant with my intellectual abilities." And I just want to apologize to you for, for being a dick yesterday, <laughs> and, I, and I'm sorry, and I, I'm trying not to do that anymore. When people do this, it's magical. It, it really deepens, often deepens the relationship. Even if the other person doesn't feel like you did anything wrong, at the very least, it shows that you care, and it shows that you care enough to, to say such a thing. I am a big fan of this kind of interaction between people, calling someone up and just saying, hey, I've been ruminating on something I said yesterday and I just want to say I'm sorry. Now, you know, there's a limit to how much you should do that and you have to gauge the other person's, you know, receptiveness to that sort of thing. But in general, I think it's it's a good practice. And I, I do it as chair of my program. I am uh, tasked with having to talk a lot. I have to uh, conduct a lot of meetings. I have to manage a lot of instructors. I, I have to manage you know, hundreds of students. I have to deal with a lot of staff people. I ha- I have to interact with a lot of people and I'm busy and I get in a bad mood sometimes and uh, I, I have low blood sugar at times. That That's one thing, the busier I get, the less I have time to eat. And so sometimes it's just that, you know, I need a Snickers bar. I've seen those commercials anyway. And then later on in the night, I am just sort of reviewing my day and I'm just thinking, Oh my God, I can't believe I said that thing today. And I can't believe I had that attitude or I can't believe I didn't do this and instead of becoming defensive about it or just burying it i i'll just shoot a quick email and just say like hey by the way earlier today blank happened and and i'm sorry uh i, I, I you know i don't have any excuse other than the fact that i was in a bad mood or tired or or was misunderstanding you or something and just wanted you to know that i that i'm that i'm sorry that that happened now you don't have to crawl on your knees but you know, just an acknowledgement. And when people do that with me, I really appreciate it. And people will sometimes do it with me. You know, to be like, oh, the other day, I've been thinking about something that happened the other day, and and I think one of the reasons is speculation as to why people don't do this sort of thing is because, well, one, it's opening yourself up to uh, criticism, and by admitting you are wrong, there's this implication that somehow someone has something on, you know, they have like ammo against you, like, well, he admitted he did something wrong, so now I can really blast him later. Um, but honestly, I think the main reason, at least for me, why I resist doing it at times when I know I should, is it's just sort of embarrassing to apologize, which is kind of funny. It's, it's, uh, it feels silly and it feels, I don't know, it just feels goofy to do such a thing. And I don't know any other word for it other than goofy and silly, but, um, and that just seems like not a good enough reason to, uh, to not apologize. If the only reason why you're not apologizing is because you don't want to feel silly. Well, I have to say that's just silly. Okay. Let's go on to the next email here. Again, we're still in mid 2013. This is listener Joe from Sydney, Sydney, Australia, I suppose. Guys, love the show. I have just started studying psychology after declining on a career change from journalism. After deciding on a career change, sorry, sorry. Guys, love the show. I have just started studying psychology after deciding on a career change from journalism, and found the show a great way to get my head around the topics while also having a laugh. Keep up the great work. P.S. Kirk, you crack me up with you crack me up with your thing with wet streets and movies. I have the exact same gripe. Yeah, there was (laughs) thanks listener Joe. Yeah. Uh, I must've three years ago had a gripe about wet streets and movies. Uh, I'll just, if you're unfamiliar, I'll say it again. And if you are familiar, I'm going to bore you to tears by telling you again. Um, I learned, I don't know how I learned, and and I'm actually bothered that I learned because ignorance is bliss when it comes to this sort of thing. But I learned a a long time ago, maybe 20 years ago, that movie makers, directors of movies and commercials and TV shows and everything, they prefer it when a street is wet as opposed to when a street is dry, particularly when it's nighttime, but really any time. And so when they're filming in L.A., it's often, it's often dry because it doesn't rain very much there. And so what these movie producers will, will do is they'll, is they'll ha- they have a water truck that, that sprays the street. So it, it, they're just wasting all this water. by And if it's a sunny day they have to spray the street several times. And so sometimes they have to spray an entire neighborhood because the cars driving around the neighborhood. And so uh, what, this, what this does sometimes, though, is now that my eyes are open to it, I can't help but to see it wherever I, whenever I'm watching movies. And I'm not looking for it. It just sort of jumps out at me. And it particularly jumps out at me when it's totally incongruent with the weather. So they're in a lot of stuff is filmed in L.A. because a lot of things are filmed down there, and it'll be a bright sunny day, midday, noon, and it's just it's just blue skies, but the streets are soaking wet, <laughs> and the cars are bone dry. So you know, I live in Seattle. It's damp here all the time. So I know from rain conditions, you know. And if the streets are soaked, then the cars are soaked, the businesses are soaked, the, uh, the trees are wet, everything. Because when it rains, as you know, it rains on everything. It doesn't, it doesn't just rain on the asphalt. But these L.A. directors will just wet down the streets, and they forget to wet down the cars as well. They forget to, to wet down the entire street. And it's just very distracting, because it pulls me out of the moment. And to me I'm thinking would I really care if the street wasn't wet? I don't think it would really degrade the quality of this movie that much. And it's still happening, which is weird because, you know, in 2016 there's a lot of gritty movies being made, you know, very in the past 20 years there's a lot of auteurs that are making very realistic movies and there's still wet streets in them it's just uh it's very bothersome it takes me out of the movie as you know i'm very into movies and i don't and i like to be transported into the world and when it's obvious that it's a movie it actually ruins it for me it's a similar thing when they do the 555 thing you know whenever there's a a um a phone number they'll go you know what's your phone number and you know the girl will say oh my phone number is 555 1234 and it's like everyone knows the five, five, five thing is, is a fake number. And to me, I'm just like, if, if I was directing a movie or writing a movie, I would just buy a phone line and, and say that phone number. Or how about the entire Hollywood community just buys one or 10 phone lines and then they just use those numbers interchangeably. If they're random numbers, you'll, you'll never notice that they're repeated. But you always hear the 555 five, five thing. It's very obvious. Yeah. So, you know, it's just another sort of film gripe of mine. It's a similar thing when it comes to license plates. A lot of times they'll they'll blur out license plates or the, they won't even have license plates because I guess they don't want I don't understand that, honestly. It's like if, if you have a, a real car with a real license plate in a movie, what do, what do they think the public is going to do with that? You're going to take the license plate and do what? I, I don't know what, what crime can, be, can happen uh, to, to someone like that. I mean, the phone number I understand because especially in, in – actually now I wonder if it's not that big of a deal, but when I was a kid, any, any excuse you had to prank call someone, you would do it <laughs> because there was no internet. There, there was very, there's very limited video games. And so the one fun thing you could do, uh, besides like playing chicken with cars <laughs> and, and throwing stuff at cars, which we would do in our neighborhood for entertainment, uh, was prank call. And so if you had a phone number in a movie, you'd be like, Oh, let's prank call that, you know, cause Batman lives at, at this phone number, let's call Batman. And, is this Batman? Ha ha ha. You know, fun times. But I wonder if today, if people do that because they have a lot more entertaining things to do with themselves. But it's similar with the license plate thing. Like, I don't know. It just seems silly to me. Okay. Let's move on. How about that? Hello from an Antioch University SIDE student, doctoral student in Santa Barbara, California. So just chiming in here, Antioch University has five campuses around the United States, and one of them is in Santa Barbara, and this person is in the CIDI program. Hello from Antioch University CITE doctoral program in Santa Barbara, California. I do love your podcast and listen on my long drives to classes. I have told my cohort of you and recommended specific episodes as they pertain to our subjects. Sometimes I think I am learning more from you than from my instructors. Seriously. Okay, just I probably shouldn't have said uh, that bit there, but um, moving on. I have so thoroughly enjoyed every episode that I've listened to, and I have much more catching up to do. But wait, there's that dissertation. (laughs) If you've graduated, congratulations. I am so happy that you have decided to enter our field and to make the world a better place. Let us know how you're doing and i hope to god you have finished your dissertation dissertations are quite a bitch and take a long time i actually put a lot of effort into making my dissertation short and succeeded and yet it still took me a couple of years to complete it is um it's uh it's quite a process it's interesting though after going through the dissertation process if i if i had to go back i could probably do it in about 10% the time i learned so much about writing and about researching and about just the whole process of research that if i if i had to do it over again i could do it so much faster so anyway uh let's see as a side note, I was at a, a meeting of all the different campuses of Antioch University. We all went to Chicago. The, there was a select few faculty that met in Chicago and talked about assessment and other, other things that I won't bore you with. But um, it was interesting to meet professors from other campuses. It was actually really nice to meet them. And Chicago was great. I've been there before, but uh, actually had a chance to tour around the city this time around. And it's great. Chicago, I think, doesn't get enough recognition. I think if, if New York wasn't uh, around, I think Chicago would be talked about a lot more. I mean, certainly we talk about Chicago, but Chicago seems to have everything that New York City has – but because it's not New York City, it doesn't get the recognition it deserves. It actually has a pretty vibrant music community. Because, again, I'm a music nerd. I went around to the different blues uh, places and saw all sorts of different music. And it's just very um, – and there's a lot of people that go to music. I mean, Seattle likes to think of itself as a music town, and I, and I suppose that it is. But after going to Chicago and going to South by Southwest, I, I'm realizing that Seattle is is okay. It it's definitely probably far ahead of other cities. It's probably above average, but I think it could do better because there's there's a lot of music happening, but I, and people are definitely going to it in Seattle, especially more so in the past, than in the past. I mean, when I was when I was in a band as a young person the age of nineteen, there were there was only like three places that bands played in Seattle, and now there's probably a hundred or something, so it's definitely better than it used to be. But I don't think people in Seattle necessarily just go to music for fun the way that I was seeing people do in Chicago and in Austin. I mean certainly people do, like myself. But it seems like a lot of people would rather do something else in Seattle and I find that they're just not open to seeing music that they don't know. Um, having said that, music that you know, I'm going to see Paul McCartney. I just bought a ticket to see him at Key Arena, which is uh, I've already seen him. I saw him at the where I see him Safeco Field, and now I'm going to see him at Key Arena, and I am looking forward to it. <laughs> I don't know why I'm telling you that. But anyway, uh, Chicago was great. I went to the Art Institute, which was amazing. Just walked around all day. That place is just amazing. My, my favorite part of the Art Institute was these miniature rooms. So uh, there's, there's actually, is it Kansas City that has a miniature museum? If you've ever had a chance, and, and if, if you've seen it, you understand what I'm saying. But there's like, the, there's like a hole in the wall, and you look through the hole in the wall, and it's a tiny little room. And at the Art Institute in Chicago, they, I think it's called Art Institute, isn't it? And um, they had all these little miniature rooms that someone had created. And when you look at it really closely, it's just amazing how realistic it feels, but it's just on this really small scale. And I took pictures of them up, up close and sent them to people, and they could not believe that it wasn't a real you know, life-size room. They couldn't believe that it was only like, you know, 10 inches high. But, um, yeah, Art Institute and the, uh, just all, I I went to Second City, saw the improv comedy there, which was great, loved it. But I thought I was going to, like, die with laughter, and I didn't. (laughs) Um, I mean, I loved it. I certainly laughed a lot, but... The improv in Seattle actually uh, seemed uh, just as good as the improv at Second City. I don't know if it was an off night, but, but um, uh, so if you wherever you are, whatever town you're in, go to the improv shows because they're hilarious in my book. Every time I've gone, I have laughed my ass off. Not literally, of course. I still have my ass. It is still attached and doing well on the backside of my body. Getting a little weird now. Okay, let's read another email here. Just one more. Again, from 2013. Found your podcasts a few months ago and have to confess I love them all. Kirk, the depth of your knowledge is amazing, considering your age. What does that mean, considering your age? Oh, because I'm not super old. I feel old. Considering my age, I feel like I should know more. But anyway, thank you very much for that. Uh, This is listener, listener... (laughs) Guir, <laughs> he says, check with Umberto on the right pronunciation. I am a Brazilian, and this is the how you pronounce William. Or you can call me Bill. I am going to attempt your name, Guilherme. Guilherme. Anyway, maybe I should just call you Bill. So thank you, Bill, for that. All right, he goes on to say, my whole my whole adult life, I worked in multinational companies such as IBM, Lucent, etc., as an executive. And by the age of 38, I got sick, literally and conceptually. The business world was killing me. Then after a coaching career process, I decided to become a coach. Started my company and have been working as a coach for almost five years, and I love it. I do it with pleasure. It's amazing to be able to help people and get paid for it. Well, Bill, good for you. I am, that's it's really great to hear. You were working in a, as an executive, and it wasn't for you. It's for some people. Some people love being an executive and get a lot out of it, but it wasn't for you, and you started feeling sick, both literally and conceptually. And you decided to take a chance on a new career, and became a coach, and now you love it. So good for you. All right, Bill goes on to say, Umberto, your sense of humor is super. Please keep showing this joy and pleasure to for life. That's good. I'll pass that along. Bill also says, Please do a podcast about the 100th monkey syndrome and how and if this can happen to humans, the 100th monk, monkey syndrome. Let me look that up. Okay, after a quick Google search I found a an interesting article and I'll just read it by Elaine Myers titled The Hundredth Monkey Revisited. Elaine Myers says The Hundredth Monkey has recently become popular in our culture as a strategy for social change. Lyle Watson first told it in Lifetide, but it but its most widely known version is the opening to the book. The Hundredth Monkey by Ken Keyes. The story is based on research with monkeys on a northern Japanese island, and its central idea is that when enough individuals in a population adopt a new idea or behavior, there occurs an ideological breakthrough that allows this new awareness to be communicated directly from mind to mind without the connection of external experience, and then all individuals in the population spontaneously adopt it. It may be that when enough of us hold something to be true, it becomes true for everyone. That was by Watson. Again, getting back to Elaine Myers. I found this to be very appealing and believable as an idea. The concept of Jung's collective conscious and the biologist's morphogenic fields offer parallel stories that help strengthen the strand of our imaginations. Archetypes, patterns, or fields that are themselves without mass or energy could shape the individual manifestations of mass and energy. The more widespread these fields are, the greater their influence on the physical level of reality. We sometimes mention the hundredth monkey phenomenon when we need to when we need supporting evidence of the possibility of an optimistic scenario for the future, especially a future based on peace instead of war. If enough of us will if enough, of, if enough of us will just think the right thoughts, then suddenly, almost magically, such ideas will become reality. However, when I went back to the original research reports cited by Watson, I did not find the, st- the same story that he tells. Where he claims to have had to improvise details, the research reports are quite precise, and they do not support the ideological breakthrough phenomenon. At first, I was disappointed But as I delved deeper deeper into the research, I found a growing appreciation for the lessons the real life story of these monkeys had for us. Well, anyway, so there's this. It's just this story of them uh, observing these monkeys and how, when they some monkeys were, so it started off with none of the monkeys washing their potatoes before they ate them, or something like that, and then they observed that. Uh, slowly, uh, people people, the monkey started to wash their one or two started washing their their potatoes before they ate them, and then when it got to the hundredth monkey, suddenly, all the monkeys were were washing their potatoes. So, at first, the idea was was isolated, but once a hundred monkeys believed it, suddenly it was the knowledge was was transferred to all the monkeys. Suddenly but this has been refuted and I've read other reports just recently upon Googling in the past 10 minutes, that the idea that it is that this, this notion of washing your potatoes, um, that there's, there's evidence that it wasn't just transferred uh, supernaturally to the other monkeys, that the, the monkeys across the river actually observed it and that monkeys that washed their potatoes actually went across the river and, showed essentially by example to these other monkeys. And so it, it the phenomenon just spread the way it would in any situation where people just, you know, people, but the monkeys would watch each other and learn from each other and that it doesn't get transferred metaphysically from brain to brain. So I, I don't know if that's what uh, Bill is writing in about and wanting some comment about, you know, the world is a strange place and consciousness is a strange thing and, there are certainly lots of unexplained phenomenon uh, that uh, phenomena that can't be explained by physical science. But when it comes to culture and learning, I think, as you all know, I, I tend to err on the side of practical science and say that uh, this hundredth monkey syndrome is probably not uh, plausible, and it'd be hard to demonstrate anyway, and it probably hasn't been demonstrated. Now, the idea that there are things that spread through our culture is definitely true. Like, for instance, what's happening right now is, as an example, I'll I'll tell you there's the word literally is becoming, it's a cultural phenomenon, the word literally in our culture. I found myself saying the word literally a lot more often than I had before just recently, just in the past, I don't know, six months or so, three or six months. And I started to, and I started to hear it a lot more. I started hearing people say things like, I literally fell down on my ass, you know, this kind of stuff. And people were starting to use the word literally in the way that it wasn't used previously. Now, language changes, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I found that people were using the word literally to mean the word actually, or just to mean to, to put a fight, to emphasize something, you know, people might say, and some people were using the, the word literally uh, as the direct opposite of what they meant, you know, it'd be like, I, you know, he literally blew my mind, you know, it's like, uh, no, he didn't literally blew your mind. He figuratively blew your mind. If he blew your mind, you wouldn't be able to talk right now. So that has been happening very recently. Now, if you were using the 100th monkey syndrome phenomenon uh, template, you would say, at some point, a hundred humans decided that literally was meant something different and was an important word to say <laughs> or something. And then it just suddenly was transferred metaphysically to all everyone else in the English-speaking world. And that would be a compelling... Uh, explanation, or not a compelling, but a compelling explanation for the people who believe in the 100th monkey thing. But what social scientists and, and other people will demonstrate, and there's no way to measure this. There's only speculation because you can't measure an entire culture because you'd have to, I don't know, you just, there's just no way to do it. But the more realistic explanation for the, for the the spread of the changing definition of the word literally and the increase in its use among people is that slowly, but surely people just started using it more or someone important that is very influential used it enough times and enough people understood it to being something different that they started using it in this other term because Five ten years ago, my i I think, and again, this is just anecdotally uh, anecdotal that when people, they wouldn't say literally, they would say something like uh, he, they would just say he blew my mind. They would just say that. But I feel like people today are, they're trying to, they're trying to make their stories bigger by whatever means they can. And one of the ways that they will do it is to drop the word literally in there because it really, he literally blew my mind. You'll hear people say stuff like that. And I think it's people's efforts of trying to just make their stories more, more interesting. And so uh, without looking at the hundredth monkey thing, you, you just see that it just slowly gets repeated over time and it be, and it's unconscious. The, 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 I just look at myself. I don't know why I started using that word more often in the past three to six months. But I I definitely was. And as soon as I became aware of its overuse, I started hearing it all the time. Now, maybe it's always been overused, and I just didn't notice it until recently. But I don't think so. I I really don't. Because I remember having problems occasionally with people's usage of the word literally and the opposite, you know, meaning figuratively. But I feel like it happens now almost on a daily basis. I will hear people say literally when they actually mean figuratively. So our language and our culture, we learn from each other and we do thing. we mimic each other, whether we like to think that or not, and we're affected by each other. And things get into our skulls, and we start using it. I mean, think of the think of the phrase hashtag fun times or hashtag lol or something. I mean, you you at first hated that in all likelihood, but eventually you start using it, maybe you hate it again. <laughs> but but there are things that move through our culture, and they affect you in ways that you are not conscious of. And so, uh, and, and it's not necess- and it doesn't have to be transferred metaphysically as the hundredth monkey syndrome suggests it it gets transferred through learning and through experience just because you don't notice it doesn't mean that it that it wasn't happening does that make any sense so i think some people might be compelled it's like why is everyone suddenly using the word literally is it some sort of hundredth monkey thing where it's just like metaphysical it's just like propagating like energy through our brains there's much more practical explanations to it you know Uh, and Now, having said that, uh, it sounds like a lot of people like the 100th monkey syndrome because it is optimistic in that it's like, well, if enough of us have uh, a conscious thought of like, let's be peaceful, let's not go to war, let's be peaceful, let's not go to war, that metaphysically we can spread this notion through our culture. Well, what I'll say is is that's probably not going to happen according to the way I see the world. But... Can you change our society by talking and by spreading ideas? Yes. If you and a bunch of other people decide that you want to start a movement of peace and contribute to the peace movement, will that help? Yes, absolutely. Movements to our culture and changes in our culture and changes in attitude and changes in government to policy all begin with us human beings. And sometimes begin with one human being. So, But it's not metaphysical. It's, it's actually doing something. You can't just sit in your room and think happy thoughts, although that might help you. You have to get out there and say happy things. And you have to change people's minds. And you have to spread the word. And so uh, we don't need a hundredth monkey to, to do that. Uh, we do it all the time. All right, Uh, listener Bill goes on, do a a podcast talking about why we fear speaking in public so much and what we can do to overcome it. Many of my coaches have this difficulty. Uh, Okay, so speaking in public, yeah, well, it's, as with all things psychological and evolutionary psychological, it's impossible to really know why we have our common fears among us, but uh, it seems like a viable speculation and there might be some indirect data to demonstrate this is that when we were evolving as social creatures, you know, 200,000 years ago, a million years ago, we depended on our tribe a great deal. Today we don't depend on our tribe. You, your entire neighborhood could hate you and you will still survive because you have a job and you have a home and you can buy food at the grocery store. But back in the day, up until very recently, maybe just even a couple hundred years ago, and even in some societies today, if your tribe, if the people who lived around you, the 50 or so people who lived around you, disapproved of you to a significant amount, then you would be dead soon because you needed your tribe to feed you, to alert you when predators were coming, to take care of you when you're sick and all these kinds of things. And so the, the rejection from the tribe was akin to death. This is, again, a speculation. But, you know, a pretty strong one, and a lot of people agree with this. So when we speak in public, we are, we are potentially going to be rejected by a large group of people. So if you get up in front of a thousand people and you fuck it up, then you are going to get negative thoughts from a thousand people all at once. And this is instinctually terrifying to us because it's, it it is akin to being left out on the Savannah without clothes or warmth or water or friends or anything. And just alone at night with a bunch of jaguars are ready to kill you. (laughs) you know, tigers and lions and those kinds of things, or even just the cold would kill you. You know, it, it, there, there's, the world was a dangerous place for us humans back in the day and we needed our tribe. And so public speaking, you know, we fear it because of that. Now our, our rational mind is like, what's the big deal? And, and people who speak in public will try to say that to them. So it's like, well, what's the worst that could happen? Um, it's you know it's okay it's not a big deal, blah blah, but um, we still have that instinct in us yeah, the the need to be accepted by our tribe. We do this all the time I mean you listening to this podcast, me making this podcast we're all trying to connect we're all trying to get approval we're all trying to uh, establish uh, approval and a place in our tribe and on our global uh, social world right now it becomes a lot more stressful for people because you cannot possibly get everyone's approval that you come into contact on a daily basis. And so we're, we're we're continually walking around in today's world, knowing that there are some people that might hate us and we can't do anything about it because they're not close enough to us. But at the very least, there's a, there's a whole slew of people that are indifferent to us. And that's, that's anxiety provoking too for us because we want people to care about us. We want people to have our back. And just think about like the the number of human beings you come into contact with on a daily basis and how many of them have your back. You probably come into, if you're like me, you probably come into contact with hundreds of people and five or 10 of them have your back. And so for all those people who don't have your back, it's, it, it's just a little bit of anxiety that gets under our skin. And, and hence you have a lot of anxious and depressed people in our society. It's again, it's all speculation, but... Uh, Let's see. Uh, Bill goes on to say, I truly enjoy your podcasts and listen to all of them. Congratulations for the amazing and developed human being you guys are. Even you, Humberto. (laughs) Uh, Thank you, listener Bill or Guerme. Guerme? Uh, It's literally pronounced. Literally. See, there you go. Literally. Literally uh, pronounced if I was going to bastardize it with my American accent. Gu, uh, Guillem, who her me? Ooh, I bet you the G is like an H. Who, who me? Who we me? me. Man, I'm terrible. All right, I just want to take a little break here and tell everyone that if you haven't become a patron of the podcast, please do so. We are up to, I think about 250 patrons, which is super rad. Let's see, 247. So please become a patron of the podcast. We're trying to get up to about 400-ish, 500 people. That's the next major goal. Uh, if we get enough funds, we can actually start paying the co-hosts, which I think is, is a good thing, right? And also, if we continue to grow the patrons of the podcast up to I don't know, say two thousand or something like that, we can potentially do this seven days a week, and it can be uh, something that I invest much more time into. I can do a lot more research. Well, I had this. I've had this sort of dream of mine uh, for the podcast in which I. I, I have thousands of books on all sorts of topics related to psychology. I mean, it just, right now I'm looking at one of my bookshelves and it's just like child and adolescent development, community psychology, counter transference, facilitating emotional change, uh, families, handbook of stress, handbook of, uh, psychodynamic case formulation, handbook of bereavement research, uh, Genograms, Getting the Love You Want, Freud, uh, Ego Development, Career Counseling. I mean, and that's just the the A's, B's, and C's in, G- well, you know, the early alphabet. <laughs> My, the dream of mine is that I would read these books in the morning, take some notes, think about it, and then make a podcast about, about you know, just one of the chapters from one of the books on this shelf. And I, I, I I would love that, but it would take me time. And in order to justify the expenditure of time, I, I need to replace certain income streams, mainly my private practice and my supervision practice with, uh, with that. So if people, uh, can become patrons, um, if, if, and you know, a number of you can, uh, Become patrons, then that can happen. And for those of you that are already patrons, uh, I'm, I've already sort of increased my, uh, dedication to time. So it's, it's just, it's incremental, I guess, is the thing. All right. Uh, let's read a, an email. I have been going back and reading old emails, right? So this one's from 2013 from listener Peter. He says, just want to let you know that your podcast is awesome That non-judgmental, calm, yet passionate tone and way of speaking really puts me at ease, even when you're not talking about issues that pertain to me. I'm currently working with a great therapist on coping with tremendous burdens in my life, but at times I still get overwhelmed, and your podcast helps. Your patients are lucky to have a therapist like you. Well, that is very sweet of you to say, listener Peter, back in 2013. I hope you're still listening to the podcast. Let me know if you are. Um, it's very sweet of you. Let's listen to another email here again, 2013 from listener Borko listener Borko. I just want to say that I really enjoy your podcast and it is one of my favorite of all time. I like your topics and the way you explain things. I'm interested in psychology very much and your podcast satisfies my interest. Yeah. Um, I wasn't, uh, intending on just reading a bunch of emails with a bunch of praise, but, um, I just did so, <laughs> but essentially it's, see this person saying I'm interested in psychology and I'm, I'm, I, at first when I made this podcast, I thought it would just be for therapists, but it's, it seems as though the vast majority of our listeners are not therapists, or not clinicians, and are just interested in psychology, which I find to be very interesting that non-clinicians would be interested in, in the clinical uh, discussions that we have on the podcast. I mean, certainly we talk about non-clinical things frequently, but it seems as though non-therapists are also interested and sort of the therapy speak which um on one hand boggles me but on the other hand does it because it always has to i think ha- hopefully has to do with all of there's something that anyone can relate to and um and so uh so yeah it's it's good to know please take care of yourself because you're a deserving listener and you also deserve it <laughs> And take care of other people as well. Uh, make sure you you pay it forward, as they say. You reap what you sow. And um, if given an opportunity, or maybe create an opportunity to care about other people. If we all care about each other, if we all increase, I'm sure you're out there caring about other people, but if we all increase that, think of how wonderful our society could be and even take care of the people that you don't like <laughs> if you're a if you're a bernie sanders supporter take care of the trump supporters take care of the the republicans if you're a trump supporter then uh take care of of the democrats you know be be loving be caring be compassionate we're all humans on this planet and we're all doing our best and we're all trying to make the world a better place and, and we're all we're all trying to um, to be good except for the psychopaths of course, but but we're all trying to be good, the ninety nine percent of us that aren't psychopaths. We're all we're all trying to make the world a better place and um, try to see that humanness in other people and try not to label them as oh he's a Trump supporter, therefore I hate him and therefore he's a racist and therefore he's a terrible person. Um, everyone, is, um, everyone is basically good, right? That's the humanistic psychology people taught us, is that everyone has potential and everyone is trying their best and everyone deserves our compassion. All right, see ya.